everyone. Thanks for joining our podcast, The Origin Podcast, History That Made Today. I'm Colin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jay. Jay, what are we going to be talking about during this podcast? So this podcast, The Origin Podcast, is going to be about history and how it impacts today. So there's really three main things here on why Colin and I wanted to do a podcast on, on history. The first one is that we just legitimately enjoy history, uh, especially the uh, when history uh, connects, like when all the pieces of the past come together. Uh, when I was when I was studying history in college, one of my favorite aha moments, if you will, was uh, when I understood the connection between the Renaissance and the Reformation, and then. When I understood that connection, I was like, oh, shoot, this is what led into the Enlightenment. And seeing those past connections is just really enjoyable. Secondly, while we're doing this podcast is not just seeing connections in the past, but seeing connections for the present, how history is the foundation for the world that we live in today. Uh, Back in 2020, uh, seeing COVID, seeing uh, the riots that came out of the George Floyd um, killing, uh, just the cultural upheaval that was 2020 uh, really made me sit back and think to myself, there's not, there's not a very good historical understanding within our, our culture today. Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, with all of that being said, we, we want to pursue the truth. And we believe that the truth is beneficial to our society, our culture, just the common good in general. So we're going to, in the pursuit of truth, try and maintain objectivity and really try and do our best to remain as unbiased as possible. So there's going to be some contentious issues that Jay already mentioned. You know, we're going to be covering politics, we're going to be covering history, and a lot of that is, you know, race relations different economics, colonialism, things that are the hot button, you know, words that you hear today. So with doing that, we are going to try and limit our biases and approach things from all angles. So if you happen to see something differently than what we do, uh, please let us know in the comments on one of our social media pages. Uh, You know, we'd love to get your feedback and hear more about um, what you think about what we talked about. So with all that being said, Jay, what's the first podcast we're going to talk about? What's the first series that we got? Okay, so our first series is going to be on the Russia, the current Russia-Ukraine conflict that really started in 2014. It obviously kind of blew up again in uh, 2020, but the focus of this series is to try to peel back the historical layers, asking the question, how did we get here? What would cause... Uh, in 2022, Russia to invade another country? What would cause Ukraine to try to want to join NATO and the EU? Why is the West having the reaction uh, that, it, that it is? How come after the peace dividend of the 90s and uh, you know, pre-9-11 era, when you know, one of the most popular books was called The End of History, <laughs> we're Great still book. talking about uh, conflict in in the West, right, or or the West with another major world power. Uh, so yeah, this this particular episode, we're just going to kind of talk about the background of 
how we got here. So, you know, I know the and everyone who's listening knows the invasion began in February, three about three months ago, which, you know, in our news cycle, that's an eternity. Uh, but really, the seeds of conflict, I think, were, were planted. You can go back to 2004 with the Orange Revolution. Um, you know, in subsequent election cycles and years afterward, you could see Russian influence and meddling in different elections. And, you know, I, I know that's not the first time we've heard in this country that the Russians have, have meddled in another country's uh, elections. But, you know, you mentioned 2014, and there's a great Messerschneider article um, about you know, written in 2014 that almost predicted a lot of what we're seeing now. Can you tell me a little bit about that article, what he gets right, what he gets wrong? Yeah, so first, just an, an introduction to, to Mearsheimer. Uh, Mearsheimer is uh, what some people have called the Pope of the international relations uh, school of thought called realism. Uh, he didn't invent it. Uh, realism has been around for quite some time. Uh, Henry Kissinger writes a really good book called Diplomacy, where he compares and contrasts idealism and realism, uh, if you're interested in that. but uh, Was he like the Pope selected by God for this position? Is that why he got that I mean, name? I personally think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, so Mearsheimer is a wicked smart dude. Even if you don't agree with him, he is, he is very well-reasoned. He's very, very intelligent dude professor at uh, University of Chicago um, and he yeah he's kind of like the main proponent for the realist school of thought in in foreign affairs back in uh, 2014 when uh, after Euro Maidan and uh, there was you know either a coup or a you know a, a democratic um event depending on how you want to look at it um you know vladimir putin smelled opportunity and the the russian elite smelled opportunity and they invaded crimea which was super easy because the there's already several thousand russian soldiers there in sevastopol where their their black sea fleet's been at for a long time and Long story short, they they seized and annexed Crimea, and they also did a did a limited incursion into the Donbass, and uh, things died down. There were some mince agreements, and in uh, at during that phase in 2014, Mearsheimer wrote an article. Uh, and this article is titled uh, "In National Affairs," uh, called "Why the Ukraine Crisis." is the west fault and just to I, throw out this i wonder first, what what uh what position he takes on this and what he's feeling right now right so and it's and it's crazy because what he is speaking against is absolutely being re-articulated today so for starters what he's kind of arguing against in this article is mainly the line of thought is that oh this is all Vladimir Putin's fault. The placing the blame squarely on the person of Vladimir Putin. But then Mearsheimer goes on to say, quote, But this account is wrong. The United States and its European allies share most of the responsibility for this crisis. The taproot of the trouble is NATO enlargement, 
the central element of a larger strategy to move, move Ukraine out of Russia's orbit and integrate it into the West. Yeah, I mean, he, Mearsheimer brings up a, a good point and basically says that it's not surprising that the Russians are reacting this way, speaking about NATO and their expansion, because he says the U.S. would never allow a military alliance to occur in the Western Hemisphere. He's just trying to turn the tables and put a perspective on it as the U.S. wouldn't tolerate the Russians coming into an alliance with Mexico and Canada and, uh, you know, something like that. Right. And he, he specifically mentions the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Like when Russia was putting weapons in Cuba, we freaked out and rightfully so. Yeah, so he's just simply trying to draw a parallel to saying like, why do we think Russia would do anything different when we try to draw the Ukraine into a military alliance? So this is not exactly, these talking points that we've been hearing for the past six months or so are, are not brand new. It's just something that we haven't talked about since 2014. I personally disagree with Mearsheimer here. Why is the, that? So, no, you, in, a, in a very real sense, if, if the main issue here was Putin invading the Ukraine in 2014 and in 2022, if that was solely for NATO enlargement, then I would, I would say, hey, you've got a point. But the reality is that that's not, that's not why Putin's doing this. And he has said as much. The, even recently, Zelensky said, okay, you, Ukraine not being a part of NATO is off the table. And Russia still is doing their thing. Like today, they're still you know, bombing the entire country. So, I, I, and oh, by the way, the Russia and Georgia joining the Ukraine has been on, or sorry, Russia, <laughs> Georgia and the Ukraine joining NATO has been put on hold since 2008. Like yeah, what happened in two, progress. What happened in two thousand eight? What happened in two thousand eight in Georgia? I, well, the Russians yeah, invaded exactly. it. <laughs> yes, and there was a there was a big summit. I forget where it took place, but there's a big summit, and like no progress has been made on either of those countries joining NATO. What happened in two thousand fourteen was an election that he didn't like, and. Hmm. You know, the guy who was pro-Russia didn't win the election, and the guy who was not pro-Russia won the election, and all of a sudden the, the Russians start coming across the border. So so that's an important point. We're talking pro-Russia, the guy that's not pro-Russia. So Mearsheimer makes a few other points here with um, the expansion of the EU and the, and the westernization of Ukraine. Two other points. Let me ask you, do you think that those are why Putin is going to be persistent in his invasion of Ukraine? The term the westernization of the Ukraine is is packed full of all kinds of confusing baggage. Let's, right? un let's unpack all that baggage right now. We got plenty of time. <laughs> so the first part is, in a very real sense, Ukraine is becoming westernized right mm -hmm. like and i'm doing air quotes here like it's becoming westernized okay they want to join the eu they want to join nato blah blah blah, blah. but in another sense 
there is no like like ukraine is still ukraine like ukraine mm -hmm. is still eastern europe ukraine very similar to russia by the way has its own unique cultural identity that it's very misleading to put it in any kind of like cultural context to say oh it's becoming like the west mm -hmm. like only only parts of what of the the people that we now know in territorial ukraine have any kind of like common cultural with the west the you know in in terms of religion the even the catholicism in the western parts of ukraine was called greek catholicism because they kept a lot of the <laughs> uh the traditions of the eastern orthodox uh in in a very real sense to say like oh a country is becoming westernized so we're gonna invade it like are you serious if what they mean by that is we don't want them uh to join nato okay got it that makes a little bit more sense don't agree with it but i can mm -hmm. understand that but to say like oh you're becoming like the west therefore i shall kill you that is ridiculous they're not doing that to the West writ large. Like, who said, what objective, uh, you know, reality is out there that, like, Russia has to kill Westerners because they're not doing it? Is it only right. Ukrainians? I don't well, understand. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good point. I, you know, I wonder, though, if he's looking at the Ukraine and seeing a Western influence, an American-backed uh, Western influence, you know, I, I think in the article, and I mean, it's pretty public knowledge now, you know, Victoria Nuland has come out and said that they've invested billions of dollars into Ukrainian, in Ukraine's economy. Now, when he says it's westernizing, is he talking about under Western financial influence? And now suddenly they are under the boot of Western, you know, economic imperialism or something like that? I don't think the westernization of the of ukraine is problematic for russia mm -hmm. i think ukraine being used as a tool by the west is problematic for russia if you were to go into the, into kiev prior to 2022 literally nobody would be like huh it feels very western here <laughs> be like no they'd be like it probably it feels very russian here i see a form of cyrillic all over the place <laughs> and like, you know most of the people there would say like i'm i'm slavic you know most people would be yeah. of you know slavic origin and you know we're, we'll talk about it in a later episode about a common cultural identity that the slavic peoples hold you know you know i'm thinking almost more like you know in terms of vietnam today you know we lost the vietnam war but if you were to go to vietnam now there would be mcdonald's everywhere the they are extremely pro-western um and they are much more open to having talks with americans and being pro-western do you think putin sees that manipulation i guess by the west that you said being a tool of the west and he is the western you know powers that be you know the eu america are slowly influencing the people of ukraine to become less russia friendly i guess yeah the i personally believe and i'm not you know an, a russian expert but i am a foreign affairs and international relations expert 
I personally believe for Russia, this conflict has more to do with ego than anything else. Or maybe a, a less harsh way to put that would be national identity, who they think they are, who mm -hmm. Vladimir Putin in particular thinks that he is and what Russia should be. So they they absolutely, it's not, you know, fake news when the when when Vladimir Putin gave a speech and said we are one country and he was talking to the Ukrainians he means that he believes that he sees them the as wayward Kiev brothers I guess yes Kievian Kievian Rus is their common heritage the another another name for Ukraine for the longest time was Little Rus right like there's <laughs> Big Rus and Little Rus right uh, and the he sees them as one people. To see your little brother, so to speak, go to another country, whereas, uh, or to, to become something else that's not part of your family, right? Mm. And have your little brother, uh, in a sense, spit in your face and say, not only do I not want to be with you, I want to join the military and economic alliance that you view as against you, when, when in reality that's debatable. Uh, that th Vladimir Putin cannot abide. Like that is that is something that cannot, you know, be continued to exist. All this talk about like, uh, you know, oh, it's the West using them against us. Like, nah. The he's he's not attacking the West per se. He's attacking little brother, uh, and that's you know that's what he wants this to end up as. Bringing the conversation back to the current, you know, say, conflict, how many, you know, actual ethnic Russians, ex you know, live currently in Little Russia, in Ukraine? So, in the current geographical boundaries of Ukraine, to include the Donbass, it's like 40-something percent. I should probably mm -hmm. look that up. But it's like... 40 something percent basically like 80 percent of people east of the Dnieper uh east of Kiev uh in Crimea they're all Russian speakers they're they may or may not consider themselves ethnic Russians like there's Tartars in there right like right. the Tartars are they Russians or are they not Russians like I don't know like the Tartars have lived in Russia for a really long time. So does that make them Russians, right? Like, I'm Scots-Irish, but I'm American. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the the point being is, is, but west of the Dnieper, you get a lot lower numbers. But what's interesting in this current conflict, you have cities like Kharkiv, which is mm -hmm. uh, a, a Russian-speaking city right on the border east of the Dnieper. And they have been fighting off the Russians like cats and dogs. Uh, the city still has not fallen because those the local people and the Ukrainian military there have just been fighting off the Russians hardcore. And they see themselves as, you know, quote unquote, Russian. So even then, like, it's, it's an oversimplification to say, like, oh, they're Russian, you know, they're ethnic Russians, they speak Russian, so of course they want to be with Russia. That's the same mistake that the, the Russian government made in, in February of this year, and they're, and they're paying for it. Right. I, I imagine they assumed that these Russian speakers, these, you know, pro-Russian civilians, you know, that live in Ukraine would 
really help them out a lot more than they have. I have read that they there are some Ukrainians who are helping the Russians, but probably not in the numbers that that uh, Putin was hoping for. It, it just strikes me that I think Putin overestimated the amount of support that he had in Ukraine. Um, that was probably a misstep on his part in his intelligence. But, you oh, know, I, I have read that there has been quite a bit of, well, maybe not quite a bit, some support by local Ukrainians. For Russia? For the Russians. You know, so the Russians are getting support from some, you know, not, it's not as much as he was hoping for. You know, the 40%, it, it's just not there. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at, you know, current, um, you know, troop dispositions in southern and eastern Ukraine right now. Mm -hmm. Of course, where where the Russians have already taken over, you're seeing some like civil disobedience, but we're not seeing like French style la resistance, Uh, you know, where they're not that I've seen in, you know, in the news or anything like that. I, I suppose it could be occurring, but the, and in the Donbass, where there's been conflict for forever, the, uh, but yes, to your point, they, I think very similar to Hitler. There's a there's a great Hitler quote where he says something about uh, the whole the entire Soviet Union is rotting. We just have to kick open the door, and the entire structure will come falling down. Putin made the same logical error by basically saying like. Ukraine's a bunch of corrupt people. They all the the masses cry out to be reunited with Mother Russia. We just got to invade, mm-hmm. and the new Red Army will shock and awe. And he couldn't have been you <laughs> couldn't have been more wrong. I want to pivot into a little bit of the information war that's being fought right now. So, in Russia, like you just said, it seems like Vladimir Putin thought that he was going to get a lot of support. He didn't get it. But what we have seen unfold over the past three months, if any time I open Twitter, it's like I see a new video posted by somebody who is either pro-Russian or pro-Ukrainian, and I see, look at this, it's the ghost of Kiev, it's, you know, the Snake Island resistance, it's, you know, all these Russian burning tanks, and a lot of it's just not, not accurate. It's just totally overblown, or it's deliberate misinformation. Do you think the Ukrainians are effectively using information to fight the Russians right now? Is that probably their best defense right now? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's their best defense. Like, I think well, the, the Ukrainians bullets that probably are, are, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's the, it's the Ukrainian in the trenches right now that's, you know, fighting off the Russians as their, their best defense. But, yes, the information war, so to speak, that we're seeing the Ukrainians utilize has been phenomenal. One thought, though, I don't know how much of it, obviously, like, I don't, I don't know if there's any way for an outsider to know how exactly they're doing it, but I'm not convinced that it's, that like every tweet you see out there is this deliberate scheme by the Ukrainian service, uh, you know, their equivalent to the CIA, I forget what they're called, um, out there to like mislead the masses as a matter of fact i think it's important to remember we only see stuff that's in english and not not everything gets translated go ahead Colin. no and and i think that's i don't think it's all deliberate i think it's almost like a you know it's kind of that you see the world war ii movie and the you know the anti-aircraft guns are, are just putting flak out in the sky so it's almost like they get a piece of information 
it's not really vetted because it has to be out so fast. So they're just throwing everything out there. Hey, we got some video clip footage that looks like a jet shooting down another jet, and it's really realistic. Let's uh, let's put this out there because it's it's very pro-Ukrainian. It's really going to help, you know, the citizens out there, the 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 resistance basically. So yeah, right. to your point, I don't think it's necessarily. A, a deliberate effort to mislead i think some of it is I, I think most of it probably 80 percent is we're just sending out as much information as we can hoping some of it's right and whatever's right is great if it's wrong at best maybe we can buy some more time yeah. honestly i think it's more of like this world star man mentality <laughs> like it's not even the it's not even the ukrainian government or it's people that work for the government doing these things it's just bros trying to get like viral, and you know what I mean. Like this whole and I, and of course I don't know this, but to me it seems entirely plausible and highly likely that that whole ghost of Kiev thing that uh, went on was a dude being like, you know, creating a meme and going, "Hey, follow my page for more," <laughs> you know, like this just cheap uh, visibility. Yeah. I mean, it, it really could have been. And that, that's an interesting thought. I mean, you've got that many people with that much hyper-focus. Um, you know, you've got billions of people tuning in to watch and, and seeing it on social media. You now have an outlet to do it. But, you know, yeah, I just think People it's very- are incentivized to lie on the internet in all kinds of ways. <laughs> that, that quick hit of, you know, the likes. And, you know, I think it's interesting, though. This is really the first time... You know, at least in my lifetime, that we've seen information in a conflict be spread this quickly. You know, we grew up on the the invasion of Iraq and different things like that, and it was always through the lens of, you know, the big news media. So what you saw was that it, it was more, it was better vetted. It was, you know, you knew what you were seeing was was accurate, right? You know, you're you're getting a live report, and that may not have been that's up to that second. Whereas now, somebody has a phone, they pull it out, they capture something, a tank burning, it is on the internet within moments and everyone can see it. And suddenly yeah. that gets passed around and you know, then you got an army of people speculating about what it actually is and people editing it and you know, reposting it. So it's just, it's interesting to see how this new element of warfare, it really is a new, a new battle space that yeah. We're seeing no, fall. and I would argue the truthful stuff is more effective than the than the disinformation. You know, when you to your point about like you have a cell phone, you're Ukrainian Joe, you just got mobilized, you happen to be working in the rear area doing POW stuff, you've got a cell phone in your pocket because you're you know 15 miles away from home, and you put on TikTok videos of these russian dudes surrendering you've wrapped their heads halfway in tape they're all depressed they don't want to be there and you just got to film them going hey man why are you here oh i was told that i was going to go do some training for three days and i go back home and then i started i surrendered because i'm like am i in the ukraine (laughs) (laughs) like that's that propaganda so to speak is infinitely more effective than any kind of you know ghost of kiev the ghost of kiev got a whole lot of you know global attention Mm -hmm. but what effect did that translate to in the battlefield i I don't know maybe some maybe some like political like hurrah but 
it, you know, when it come down, when it came down to af- actually affecting troop morale, I don't know if that had any of it. But if you see a TikTok of Russians surrendering and they basically say like, "Man, I don't even know why I'm here," that mm-hmm. helps your morale quite a bit. Absolutely. So you know, wrapping this up because uh, you know we're at time, coming up on time here. What do you see? How do you see this conflict ending? What do you see victory conditions for Putin, and what do you see victory conditions for Zelensky? I'm gonna go with an incredibly bold guess, mm-hmm. and it is a guess, but I'm gonna be bold here, right? And, I, and I'm gonna give some some historical reasons why. This is the podcast, right? exactly. <laughs> How do I think this war is gonna end? I think there's gonna be a coup in Moscow, and and Vladimir Putin is gonna get evicted. The reason why I say that is Vladimir Putin has tanked his country's economy, right? The entire Vladimir Putin got to where he is because he was one of the guys that was handing out formerly Russian controlled businesses, state controlled businesses Mm -hmm. to his cronies and he got them rich. And all those cronies were like, Hey man, like, you know, as long as you fatten up my pocketbook, I'll do whatever the heck you want me to do. And people support him and, and this, that, and the other. He did it in St. Petersburg first. He did it in Moscow later. Yeltsin was like, hey, I like this dude. He seems to be pretty smart. He's a re- Putin is a realist, right? And when the Soviet Union fell, people wanted money, and there was all these state-owned businesses that needed to be doled out, hence the oligarchy that we now have in Russia. That is rapidly going away. And people can only remain loyal for so long. Historically speaking, Hitler was very similar in that, not that he was doling out state-owned businesses, but that Hitler was successful in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Hitler brought uh, you know, Germany out of the Weimar Republic, which was economically disastrous. Their economy sucked. And you know, for that and a whole lot of other reasons, Hitler turned germany into a much better it was if you were a german you were like yes we're gonna make germany great again they did make germany great again in a sense right and even all the way up to you know september of 1939 he had he had annexed austria he had annexed mm-hmm. parts of czechoslovakia uh or now czechia the you know the yugoslavs were scared of him Neville Chamberlain was scared of him. Like, everybody was scared of him. And all he said was, hey, Poland, we want Danzig. Like, he was very successful up until that point. That was 1939. It took, I don't know, a year after that when people started going, oh, shoot. Like, you know, hey, Poland fell. That makes us look good. Hey, France fell. That makes us look good. Wait a minute. Now he's talking about invading Russia. Like, bro, are you crazy? <laughs> and it and it all went down from that downhill from there and the coup planning started. Mm-hmm. And before long, like it happens when you have a crazy dude in charge, the coup planning starts and the longer the current situation goes, the more it festers. I I'm going to respectfully disagree. I think Here's how I see it playing out. I think that, uh, I think that Putin. I think there is going to be coup talks. I do think that there's going to be some 
some level of dissent uh, within his own, you know, his own staff. But I don't. I think he has been in control and in power for so long that he has it. He has such an iron grip on control in Russia. I think that a lot of Russians, even though he's he might be crazy and terrible, they're going to look to that strength and say this is a Russian. I mean, they did it with Ivan the Terrible, who we'll talk about later. Um, you know, and I think with the economy, I don't think it's as bad. I mean, the ruble is doing well. Um, you know, you could say he could simply look at it and say, "Hey, look, we might be doing bad, but every other economy is doing bad." You know, we're we're blaming Russia; he's blaming the West. So it's given him some legitimacy to say, "Hey, look, the West is boy; they are really turning the screws to us," and he's almost using that to galvanize. I think the Russian people, and he's been in, you know, he's been in ugly conflicts in Chechnya and Georgia, um, and he didn't lose that much support. So I think that he's going to maintain support and maintain control. I don't think he's going to completely take over Ukraine. I think he will annex the eastern part in the Donbass region, and I think Ukraine will remain out of NATO, but I think it'll still exist, and I think Zelensky will still remain in control of Ukraine. But I think that peace is going to be tenuous at best, and I think it's going to come under threat within the next five years. Um, yeah. No, I, and I don't think anything you just said was is implausible. Hey, we're, 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 making, we're making guesses right now. Yeah, we're making Hail Marys. I do think it's going to be interesting, though, Let's just say, hypothetically speaking, um, say Russia is able to push the Ukrainians out of the Donbass, the Luhansk and Donetsk regions fully occupied by Russia. They've already also occupied a significant section of the southern part of the country, north of, excuse, uh, excuse me, Crimea, but they still haven't got Odessa. What I I am very interested to see what's going to happen if they do that and Russia goes, we're good. Mm-hmm. The Biden administration has talked a very strong game, diplomatically speaking. Uh, you know, President Biden has made comments about uh, regime change. He's made comments about uh, war crimes. That's not a foundation for. <laughs> you can't a, be friends after a, that. Yeah, like the, the, we just don't go back to how things were. The world has fundamentally changed, mm-hmm. and what is, is it? The Biden administration has had a rough go. <laughs> the first, <laughs> the first year or so, the midterms are not looking good. Is the is the Biden administration just going to kind of walk back all that stuff? Personally, if they do, which is they totally could, but if they do, you can kiss any hopes (laughs) of maintaining, uh, you know, power in the federal government goodbye. Like, there's no way. And if that happens, is Donald Trump coming back to office in 2024? Is there going to be another... Republican who's much softer on Russia, and are we just going to let Russia have the Donbass and Crimea? Did all this, is all this going to go away? That to me, that's going to be that'll be an interesting time to be an American for sure. <laughs> I think we'll definitely have more podcasts on it, but uh, that that concludes this first episode of the Origin Podcast. 
We've talked here about the conflict as we see it right now and some of the other important points. Next week, we're going to talk more about this Russian identity that we spoke of, tracing their lineage all the way back to the Kievan Rus through Ivan the Terrible, and some of these pre-Soviet and then into the Soviet leaders that they often look to um, really to unite and legitimize their actions. So tune in next week for episode two on the Origin Podcast. Thanks, everyone.